Our speaker today, Diana Sieve Greenwald, is an art historian and economic historian. She is currently the assistant curator of the collection at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum here in Boston. Prior to that, she was an Andrew W. Mellon postdoctoral curatorial fellow at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, DC. And I have to also add that Diana and I also recently served together on the board of the Association of Historians of American Art. Um, and fittingly, she was uh, the treasurer for that organization and did tremendous work. Dr. Greenwald received a DPhil in history from the University of Oxford and an MPhil in economic and social history from Oxford and a bachelor's degree in art history from Columbia University. She is here with us today to discuss her new book, Painting by Numbers, Data-Driven Histories of 19th Century Art. On a personal note, I'm so thrilled to see this work in print and know it will be a major contribution to the field. And as I'm sure Diana will make clear, um, art historians are very skilled at working qualitatively, um, closely examining the, uh, the artifacts and the evidence in front of us. Um, and what's so exciting about um, Diana's project is that it combines that kind of work with um, methods for you know, more qualitatively um, assessing, assessing historical documents, um, integrating methods from the digital humanities and from the social sciences. Um, and as she's proven, uh, these data-driven examinations yield important and insightful discoveries. So please join me in welcoming Diana. Thanks so much, Christina. And now we'll do the awkward Zoom screen share, everyone's favorite part of the presentation. So let me just go into presenter view. All right. Um, thank you to Christina and the Boston Athenaeum for having me today. I'm thrilled to be here um, and really excited to talk about um, this book and uh, what it even actually means to create a data-driven history of art. So without further ado, um, I'd like to start with a little anecdote that I think sort of introduces the state of the field and why it's important to, to engage with these kinds of methods. So you're probably thinking, wow, this is an IBM punch card from a very long time ago. I hope she isn't doing her analyses with this. And I'm not, but I, will, I like to start with this slide because it refers to an anecdote. Um, that I really enjoy about a famous art historian named Jules Brown. He taught at Yale for many years. And he was working on a project about um, John Singleton Copley. We'll put up um, one of the Athenaeum's Copleys here. Uh, and what Brown did using an IBM punch card, like the one you just saw, is he actually analyzed statistically relationships between John Singleton Copley's sitters um, and their socioeconomic background. So if they were ministers, if they were merchants, where they lived um, and their preferences in portraiture. So did ministers order a certain type of painting versus merchants, et cetera. And it turns out he actually found statistical relationships between socioeconomic background and taste in art. Now he presented this work at the annual um, sort of the major annual meeting of art historians called the College Art Association. Keep in mind at this point, it was about 1963. He put up an image of the IBM punch card he had used and he was quite promptly um, booed. <laughs> he was actually jeered by the audience for daring to combine statistics with um, the study, in this case of a major American painter. And so he wrote an essay reflecting on this experience 
And he said something quite insightful, um, which I think still largely proves true. He said, on the basis of this experience, I'm convinced that computing technology will be used as sort of a finding aid in art history, that art historians will embrace using computers to locate information, locate images, so on and so forth. However, in general, they will resist the more complex possibilities that computing represents for art history, like finding relationships between socioeconomic background of sitters and their taste in art. And I'd say in general, this comment, which again was made in the 1960s, has proven true. As you probably are familiar, um, museums, universities provide a lot of art historical researches on the web. We have a lot of digitized collections. I'll actually talk a little bit about that later on. But often we view computing technology as a way to just find stuff, not as a way to sort of analyze some deeper relationships or trends in art history. And so I'm very grateful to Prown for laying out this sort of dichotomy. And I view my book as a way to try and engage with those more complex uses of computing. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about how I do that, how I came to this topic, et cetera. So a brief roadmap of where we're going. Um, Christina mentioned in my bio, I actually trained as an economic historian and an art historian. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about economic history and how I've used it as a guide um, for data-driven histories of art. I'll give you a brief overview of sort of samples of the range of historical data that's actually out there about the art world. We'll talk about what we can learn from what I call a macroscopic view, a zoomed out data-driven view of the art world. And then I'm gonna drill down to a particular case study, which is actually based on a chapter from the book. Um, and it's gonna be about women artists in 19th century America. So starting with economic history. Um, so, Many of you may think of economic history as possibly the study of trade in the past, money, financial things. Um, it absolutely is that, but it's also something which is about applying um, economic methods to and quantitative methods to historical questions that you might not actually think of as economic. So you take a historical research question, you find some data and you think about how you can answer that question quantitatively. Um, so what I, this is an example I really love of exactly that type of kind of deep analysis that you might not think of as economic history. Um, this is a figure uh, from a fantastic book by, um, that came out about two years ago. And what we're actually looking at here is that the authors were able to find correlations between the rate of enslavement in counties and states in the Southern United States um, and how many votes Barack Obama received um, in the 2008 presidential election. And so what they find is actually a legacy of slavery, right? So from 1860, in this, in this case, more than a hundred years before the Obama election still has a significant effect on voters' willingness to vote for a black candidate for president, right? So this is an example of how we can see relationships in history using quantitative and economic methods that otherwise might not be so visible. And so 
as sort of a segue to what can these kind of methods bring us in art history, um, I want to talk about historic heights. You're probably like, why is she talking about historic heights? However, there's um, a lot, it, it illustrates, I think, a really important point for the value of quantification in art history. Now, uh, economic historians often use heights as sort of proxies for human health in the past. Basically, the taller people were, the healthier they were, and this becomes a way of studying well-being over time. Now, what's really interesting is that for a number of years, economic historians were working with military records to record heights. And it turns out there's a problem with this. So military records or militaries often had height minimums. So what you end up with is a sample of historic heights where people actually appear taller than they were because you're only capturing the tall people um, who were able to serve in the military. And so this is an example of something that economic historians are really concerned with, I should say economists as well, um, and it's called sampling bias. And so sampling bias is basically when the sample that you're studying, in this case, let's say the heights of soldiers, is actually not representative of the population that you're interested in. Let's say all people in Sweden or whichever military they were working with. And what you end up with is drawing incorrect conclusions about history because you focused on a sample that's biased. Now, what does this have to do with art history? Well, what I like to talk about is in art history, our sample is an art historical canon, right? It is actually a reasonably limited number of works that are famous, that are by famous artists that have ended up in major museum collections or even in any museum collection where we can see the works. And it turns out that this sample of artworks is quite small. And actually, we're not really sure of the ways in which it may be biased because it's very hard to compare this preserved sample to the kind of full population of artworks that may have been produced in the past. And this is where I think data-driven methods can be hugely valuable to art historians. Because as I'm gonna show in the next section, we actually have trace data about hundreds of thousands of works that were produced and shown in the 19th century, but have since sort of disappeared off the face of the earth. So we can, for the first time, think about the ways in which the canon we study might be biased and juxtapose that sample with a broader population. So to do this, we need data. Um, and you might think, gosh, where could all this data be? Um, and it turns out it's kind of everywhere. Art historians love making lists. Um, and this is one example of one of those kinds of lists. Um, this is actually a page from uh, a, a publication from the 1940s. It's a list of every work shown in the kind of annual exhibitions at the National Academy of Design, which was a major art school and exhibition venue in 19th century New York. Actually, it, it lasted beyond the 19th century. Um, and you can take these sorts of lists and you can see it's actually really rich data where we have, let's say Albert Bierstadt, the landscape painter. We have the works he showed in a given year. We have his address. We have whether or not something was for sale. 
Actually, you see the Boston Athenaeum there. <laughs> I didn't even notice that before this talk. There you go. Um, and so we have these lists. These were often created as finding aids, right? Thinking back to Brown and art historian's interest in ways to find information. But it turns out we can digitize this information. So this is actually a spreadsheet that I made um, that is a transcription of the page you just saw. And suddenly this can become a hugely valuable data source, right? We can suddenly track how many paintings were done by certain artists over time, even where they lived, which subjects they showed, etc. Now, in addition to this kind of um, transcription of historical lists and written records, we also have uh, online collections. And, you know, some of you may engage with these kind of object pages often. Um, what's sort of interesting is that when you look on any online collection, there's actually a backend system that is supporting that information. In this case, something called TMS. Um, and this is where the curators, the catalogers have put in all the data about that work of art um, in order for it to be online and accessible. Now, what's really cool is a lot of these sources, a lot of these um, collection management systems export to spreadsheets, which is pretty handy. So as a result, we have both historical lists of things shown in historic venues, but we can actually also get data to compare with that initial historic kind of um, show. We can compare it with what is in museums and we can get a lot of data about what's in museums quite quickly and accessibly. So, and those two types of data sources, both the National Academy of Design and an online collection are gonna figure really uh, prominently in our case study. But I do wanna give you sort of like a bit of a fun tidbit about what we can learn from the macroscopic view, not just in an American setting, which is what I'm gonna focus on in the case study, but in some of the other case studies in the book, which specifically deal with um, France and Britain. So what happens when we've done all this digital work, we've done all this transcription and we can start graphing. And Christina, who's known me for a while, knows that I love a good graph. This is one of my favorites, <laughs> mostly because it's just so clear. Um, so this is actually a graph of, of paintings shown at a venue called the Paris Salon. The Salon was a major um, art, vet, art exhibition venue in, in France um, that was active from the end of the 17th century, really until the 20th century, although it kind of gets a little complicated after 1881, which you can see as our end date here. And what I wanna show you is the ways in which um, politics were very much on display in this venue. So this is a fun one. Here we have members of the Bourbon family, right? So we have the Kings of France. And you see, these are the number, of, this is the percentage of portraits exhibited in this venue. You see a spike in their depiction, um, sort of unfortunately right before the French Revolution. So Louis XVI loses his throne, eventually his head. And you see that they completely disappear from the walls of this uh, French uh, art venue. Here are the Bonapartes who sort of replace them and take over, although never at sort of the level of depiction and portraiture that you have of the Bourbons. And then our next spike 
This is actually called the Bourbon Restoration. So there are two kind of Bourbon kings who take the throne in the early 19th century. And what's interesting is they really double down on portraiture, right? So this kind of visual language of their, you know, now beheaded predecessors. Um, and they really try and assert their authority by sh through sheer quanti quantity of depiction of themselves and their family members. They also fall out of power, they disappear again. And here we have the second empire, so more Bonapartes. So this might not be a completely unexpected finding, <laughs> um, but it's a really kind of clear example of how when we zoom out and we look at huge numbers of paintings, in this case, about 36,000 paintings, we can see certain trends, um, certain historical trends in this case in uh, political leaders kind of self-presentation and portraiture that otherwise you might have a sense of by moving from painting to painting, but it's immediately clear once we have a graph. Um, I'll show you one other, one other graph from another chapter in the book. Uh, I have a chapter about um, images of empire at the Royal Academy in London. Um, and what you'll see is really interesting here. Uh, and I'll, I'll let you read the book to figure out why. Um, I expected there to be lots of images of the British Empire at the Royal Academy. Uh, it turns out I was dead wrong. And you'll see that England and European countries are by far the most exhibited, the most depicted images at this kind of major London art venue. Um, and you only start seeing really a handful. Here we have Egypt, 380 depictions of depictions of countries that the British actually controlled in an imperial sense. And um, so that's another kind of surprising finding uh, that maybe the politics that we see on display in let's say this French setting, perhaps they're not as evident on the walls of a British venue. Now, those are just some teasers, um, but I wanna dig into uh, a more specific and kind of more detailed case study. Um, and this is, uh, it's based on chapter four in my book. Um, and it's about women artists and their attainment in, in 19th century America, their artistic production in 19th century America and how this might affect their preservation and fame to this day. So start with a brief um, anecdote. As Christina mentioned, I was a curatorial fellow at the National Gallery of Art. Um, and one of the jobs that curatorial fellows generally have um, are cataloging and also kind of assisting the, cura the full-blown curators with shows. And there was this kind of wonderful coincidence in my time at the NGA. Um, I was actually working on a show called Sense of Humor. Um, and I was looking at this wonderful image, which some of you may be familiar with. Um, from the Guerrilla Girls, who are a feminist artist collective who are, um, who are still active, but who were founded in the 80s. Um, and they put together these fantastic posters um, that really kind of poke fun at the art world in the name of social justice and equity. And in this case, it's, you know, the kind of tongue in cheek, do women have to be naked to get into the Met? And they actually went around and counted <laughs> Even the number of women artists in the modern art section and also the nudes. So you see less than 5% of the artists um, are women, but 85% of the nudes are female. Um, and so I sort of had this in mind, this kind of 5% of artists in the modern art section, the Met, 
uh, statistic. At the same time that in another uh, part of my job, I was actually cataloging um, a recently uh, acquired gift um, from, um, of 19th century American still life paintings. And in cataloging sort of this, this hundred plus group of works that had come to the National Gallery of Art, um, I realized there were a lot of women artists that actually the kind of 5% number of the Gorilla Girls didn't necessarily seem to apply to this group of um, mostly sort of fruit and flower and food painting uh, that was showing up at in this collection of 19th century American still life. And so I sort of started thinking to myself, you know, do women have to paint fruit and flowers to get into the NGA? What, what's going on here? And actually, is this presence of women that I'm qualitatively observing in um, this collection of 19th century American still life, is there something more systematic to it? Is this a one-off? How can I figure this out? It turns out I actually had data about um, 19th century American art about the National Academy of Design. I showed you that list earlier. So I could really kind of dig in to these questions. So the first thing I did um, is that I looked at the percentage of paintings that were shown in that major American art venue that were by women, by women artists. Um, and by the way, I'm happy to talk in the Q&A a little bit about how I was able to categorize artists by gender. I know that's a complicated question, especially today, but um, I can talk through some of the details of that. And the first thing you'll notice is that um, there were a lot of women showing art at the National Academy of Design. So you see that particularly after the Civil War, they're routinely between, they're routinely showing between 15 and 20% of the works that are on display. Um, so this would sort of at the first look, you think, huh, maybe the kind of sometimes uh, less than pronounced presence of women artists in some uh, museum collections doesn't actually connect with their participation in real time uh, in the 19th century. And so I started digging in to the history of women artists in the 19th century in a little bit more detail. And so there are a couple of really interesting things that really tell us about actually quite elevated rates of participation, um, women, women artists participation in the 19th century American art world, particularly as compared to Europe. Um, one of which being that American art academies were not nearly as sort of old and established nor as wealthy as their European counterparts. So quite frankly, for reasons of revenue, um, they start accepting women pupils much earlier than often, earlier than we see in Europe. Um, and so there's really quite robust participation. Now there are issues around um, women's life classes, what women can actually paint in life classes, which happens later than for, for male artists, but we know that they're present in the 19th century. Now, just knowing kind of the raw number of women artists that are participating is one thing, um, or the kind of number of works that they're showing in general, but you can actually dig into this data in a little bit more detail. And remember, I had sort of observed in passing that um, a lot of women artists were showing up in this collection of still life that I was cataloging. And 
I wondered if that trend was actually borne out in the 19th century data. And really interestingly, it turns out it was. So um, this graph is actually the percentage of works shown at the National Academy of Design that were still life painting. Um, and then I was able to divide these works by the gender of their maker. So what we're seeing is that actually routinely of all the still life that's shown at the National Academy of Design, a lot of it is by women artists, right? So we have really quite strong, actually above average representation of women artists um, in still life as a genre. And then you sort of have below average representation of male artists also in still life. And so the kind of um, gut reaction that people tend to have, and first that, you know, sort of I, I had sort of inherited when I was looking at this trend was, oh, well, it's socially appropriate in the 19th century for women to paint still life, right? You know, we assume that uh, painting flowers is kind of feminine. It doesn't involve painting models, um, nude models, let's say. Therefore, that must be why women are more active. And certainly there is that sort of um, sexism and which genres were acceptable for women to paint that comes into play. But I also realized that there were some other factors at play um, that I wanted to dig into and that actually come from theory and labor economics um, about women, women's work and time constraint. So something that's really interesting is that uh, economists have actually been studying women in the workforce for many, many years. And part of this is because while men's participation in the labor force has um, stayed fairly constant over time, uh, women's participation has changed a lot um, over the years. And there's actually an economist at Harvard. Um, her name is Claudia Golden. Her work is fantastic. Um, and she has developed some really interesting theories about women's work and attainment and time constraint. So as we hopefully are all aware and, and know, um, women are now actually surpassing men in a lot of educational attainment, um, but there are still gender wage gaps that are, that are persistent. Um, and part of what Golden has been able to show in why a lot of these wage gaps persist uh, has to do with time demand. So she's shown that the fields, often the highest paying fields um, among, let's say, let's white collar work, um, involve massive amounts of time demands. But interestingly, not just a lot of time, but inflexible schedules that are client facing and dependent on clients' time scales. So if we think about lawyers, who are constantly at their clients' whims or bankers. Um, these are fields where women tend to succeed the least. Uh, and it tends to be because a client-facing, long demanding schedule is not particularly compatible with the domestic responsibilities that we know women absolutely shouldered in the 19th century and even in today's much more feminist world continue to shoulder um, disproportionately. So, Golden showed really convincingly that it is fields where women can work in shifts 
And what's interesting is we might think of shift work as maybe a factory work or something like that, but more and more fields are becoming more like shift work. Think about ER doctors who work on, and then for let's say eight hours, 12 hours, and they leave and they're off. In shift work, where time schedules are consistent, not client facing, and when you're off, you're off, actually tend to be where women thrive. So again, ER doctors, pharmacists, really quite high profile jobs, but where you can go to work, be at work fully on and be fully off tend to be where women succeed the most. Now, why do bankers and ER doctors, what does that have to do with women artists? Well, if we think about still life painting, what are some of the hallmarks of still life painting as opposed to other genres in 19th century American art? A still life painting can be set up in a corner in a studio, if a woman has a studio, and left for long periods of time. The artist can actually come and go as he or she pleases to work on the still life. It's not exactly like the flowers are gonna get up and move on their own. Um, they tend to be smaller, so they're a little bit less time demanding overall. And they in and all of this is in kind of significant contrast to let's say portraiture, where you have to be working with a sitter on that sitter's schedule. It often takes a number of sittings to make a painting happen. And the artist is very much client facing in that sense. Think about large 19th century landscape paintings that often get, you know, like the Bierstadt, <laughs> we saw Bierstadt in our data set earlier, um, which demand long trips on survey parties that you have almost no control over. Um, and then huge amounts of studio time when you get back to create really large canvases. So if we think about this concept of time demands and how it affects women's labor even today, there are actually analogies for this um, in painting genres. And so I got sort of interested in using this lens of time constraint to look at in not only which genres women are most active in, but how that activity in a certain genre has actually hampered their presence in major public collections and also their, um, their basically renown. So if we think back to TMS, the back end of that collections management system that I showed you, um, I actually was able to get data from the Metropolitan Museum of Art's American Ring, where most of their 19th century American art is held. Um, and rather practically, there are really close ties between the Met and the National Academy of Design. So we can think of the National Academy of Design as kind of a pipeline to the American wing, and we can see what made it through the pipeline to the Met and what didn't. And so we'll start with sort of some initially interesting things. So if we look here, we look at sort of all fine arts, the American wing collects decorative arts and fine arts. This is their fine arts. Um, at the time that the data was pulled, this has actually probably changed since, but in 2018, when I got this data, only about 6.33% of works were by women artists, right? So not, not a great percentage, but look what happens when we go to still life painting. Suddenly, almost 24% of the works of the still lifes held at the Met, in the Met's American wing are by women artists, although men still dominate. But the thing I want you to focus on is this sort of end number, the total number. 
look how tiny the number of still life paintings is that's been preserved. So what we have is this issue where, let's say the Met, if we go back to this kind of monumental view, collects these huge history paintings, a lot of genre paintings, a lot of famous uh, landscape paintings. These are the genres where 19th century women are least present. And they are also the genres that are most collected by this museum. So the genres where women are more present and there is sort of more equality of representation um, are the genres where uh, that, the, that the museum has, has not collected as much of, right? So we've sort of seen one factor that might be limiting women's presence in these collections. Now, I actually also worked with um, another line in the data, not just about genre, but about medium. And so, because works are cataloged also by medium, um, thinking about what media an artist works in also has to do with issues of time. Watercolor is faster than oil. Um, it's actually also usually cheaper in terms of materials. And so it works on paper in general tend to be kind of faster and more accessible. And so I was interested to see if there are any media differences across um, men and women artists. So this is a breakdown. This is a line in the data called object type um, for male artists in the American wing. And so you can see the biggest category here is actually drawings and pastels so that has works on paper. The second um, most represented category is paintings, oils on canvas, then watercolors, and then sculpture. Now we can look at this same breakdown for women artists. And what you'll notice is that the first presence is miniature painting. So this is these small actually portrait images usually um, that are on ivory or other copper, it depends. Um, but I'd like to note they're quite small, quite quick, um, usually, and they're light sensitive. I'll talk about that in a minute. Then drawings and pastels are the second most common sort of object type, then watercolors, and finally paintings, oil paintings. And so for those of you who may be curators in the crowd or art collectors or museum frequenters, um, something you might know is that these first three types of object are light sensitive and actually can only be shown sort of for limited times before they need to rest and go back to storage. It's only really the oil on canvas that can be on view and, and sculpture that can be on view pretty much all the time. And so what's fascinating is that you end up with sort of another form of discrimination even once artists make it into a collection, women artists are more represented in media that can't actually be on display all the time. So you've ended up with, maybe they've made it into this moment of preservation, but they're not actually gonna be sort of exposed to the public and presented, again, if we go back to this big view, in gallery all the time as part of this heroic narrative. Now I wanna conclude with um, sort of some, a last kind of deep dive that um, is at the end of, end of the chapter so I had all these theories about time constraint and women artists, and it seemed to show up in the data, but you know, art historians, we also have to go back to the archive. And so um, quite handily, um, there's a, a famous 19th century woman artist named Lily Martin Spencer. You can see her wonderful self-portrait here, um, who was exceptional 
um, in her achievements as a professional women art women artist before mostly she worked um, for a, a lot for a number of years, but her most of her work it comes from before the Civil War. She's kind of a notable antebellum uh, 19th century woman artist, um, and she was a genre painter. And I'll show you an example of one of her wonderful genre paintings. Um, this is actually an image of her own husband, Benjamin Spencer. Uh, and Lily was exceptional in a number of ways, not only for her talent, but actually also for her progressive upbringing. She was brought up by parents who were kind of ardent socialists and feminists. They really brought her up to be a professional independent woman. Benjamin, her husband, who you see here, was actually a stay-at-home parent. Um, and they had seven children who lived to, uh, who lived to maturity. And I think she had 13 kids in total. Um, don't, don't quote me, I have to double check, but long story short, they had a lot of kids. Um, and Ben rather exceptionally stayed home to help take care of the children while Lily supported the family as a professional artist. So in a way you would think this is the most progressive possible setup, certainly for the 19th century, that Lily would feel free to have plenty of time to work. But it turns out in the hundreds of letters that she wrote to her parents, we're back home in Ohio. She was living in New York and then Newark, New Jersey. Um, every single letter pretty much starts with, we just don't have enough time. And or, you know, every day I have been trying to write but absolutely have not found the time. The kind of recurring theme is that she has no time to paint. She's consistently responsible for the kids who get in her way while she's trying to paint in her home studio. Actually, the kids end up being models half the time. Um, and she is just consistently squeezed for the opportunity to work. And rather interestingly, also the opportunity to market her works because in the 19th century in the United States before there was significant kind of dealer infrastructure, artists themselves were responsible for a lot of the client facing commercial elements of being a professional artist. And she is just absolutely straining under the pressure of making this happen with her responsibilities also as a parent. And we can actually, if we look at, there isn't a formal catalog raisonne of Lily's work, but there is um, a catalog that's about as comprehensive as, as you're able to get. And what's really interesting is if we look at by decade, her productivity, we see here, basically I think she has her first child, I wanna say in 1847. She has another two kids here. And then the remaining two or three, and then I think after child number four or five, things just start to kind of decline in terms of her ability to produce. Um, and so we see even for this example of the most successful or one of the most successful 19th century American women artists, um, there's incredible time pressure between her ability to work um, and her ability to support her domestic responsibilities. And it's probably not a coincidence if we think of St. Mary Cassatt, other really famous 19th century women artists, they are um, often unmarried, often don't have children, and often have actually are, have other financial means to help support and mitigate the domestic responsibilities of being a woman in, uh, in the 19th century. Now, what I think is really interesting is that, um, these issues, these pressures about time constraint and women's labor, of course, are not limited to the 19th century. These structural issues that we're seeing for women artists in the 19th century, we can also use to help understand 
women artists today um, and how they can manage their careers and how they can be kind of, um, they can make it into our museums and into the art historical canon. So this is one um, kind of wonderful work. This is uh, a screenshot of an online project by an artist named Lenka Clayton called Artist Residency and Motherhood. Uh, I recommend you check it out. But she talks about the issues of having to work in uh, nap length stretches. Um, and then there's this really potent example. Again, you know, if you're if you're a curator, you're always seeing all of these things as you as you kind of exist in your museum. When I was at the National Gallery, uh, we had a retrospective of work by a British sculptor named Rachel Whiteread. Um, and Whiteread won a very prestigious prize called the Turner Prize. Um, and she won this in the 90s for basically doing huge casts. Um, in this case, you're actually seeing a study for something called House, where she created a massive past plaster cast of a house of a house that was actually going to be destroyed. Um, so these massive projects, incredibly logistically complicated and time consuming, and she gets really famous in the 90s for doing this work. And what's so interesting is because this was a retrospective, you saw that early really big work. And then you also saw, and this was one of my favorite pieces, um, her works when she had young kids, when she uh, started taking on more domestic responsibilities that she had to balance with her career. And what does she start casting? This is called lineup. These are actually used toilet paper rolls that she casts basically in between, and the, the interpretation for the show talks about this, in between the responsibilities of, of her personal life. And this was the scale that was manageable. And this is the subject matter she was confronted with um, because the reality is this is what women are expected to, to burden or to, to bear in this day, you know, even today um, as we've gotten more progressive in our views. And so this is the artwork that she made. And you have to sort of ask yourself if she had not made the kind of big flashy thing at the beginning in the 90s before moving on to casting toilet paper rolls, would she have been at the National Gallery? Would she have had that retrospective? And so I think that tracing these kind of structural time constraints and their effects on women artists and their long-term attainment um, back to the 19th century helps us highlight how these same issues exist today. Um, and that we still need to grapple with them, even if we've moved beyond the sort of sexist 19th century assumption that women must paint flowers. And so with that, I'll say thank you very much for having me. Um, I'll stop my screen share and I'd love to field any questions. Thank you, Diana, that was fantastic. Um, yes, let's dive right in. We have time for several questions here. Um, so first question um, coming from Erica Herschler. Welcome, Erica. Uh, do these statistics about women artists stay consistent if you tally the numbers from the more liberal Society of American Artists in New York rather than the NAD? Um, that's a really great question, Erica. Thank you. And thank you for coming. Um, you know, I don't, I didn't, I don't have the Society of American Artists numbers. The, the frank answer is that um, 
all of this transcription takes an enormous amount of time. And so while I had worked from the NAD and had that available and worked on that for my dissertation, uh, I don't have Society of American Artist numbers yet to compare with. Um, but it, I think that the more data, the better. And it would be really interesting to see, to compare sort of ideological compare, um, position of 19th century institutions and their own traditions. I mean, the NAD is kind of a poor track record about appointing women artists as academicians um, and to see if that's borne out. Um, I will say that the still life factor does seem fairly consistent even when I do have numbers about PAFA, for example, I'm sorry, that's the, the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, um, which has sort of historically a better track record with women artists. And you still see a fair amount of this still life balance, uh, still life bias. Um, and another question, how does your research on women artists apply to the Gardner collection? Is it something you've studied or will do in the future. And um, to add to that, Diana, I'd also love to hear um, anything you have to share about women collectors, also thinking of um, Isabella and, um, and other women collectors that have you know, historically founded museums or been the seed collections for institutions. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and you know, I, I've been at the Gardener about a year and a half and I think there's something that I have learned in that year and a half, which is that Isabella is not kind of a straightforward feminist hero. Um, so what's really interesting is of course she is herself quite a strong woman, also one who was quite happy to be called Mrs. Jack through a lot of her life. So that's Mrs. and then her husband's um, nickname. Um, and she did not collect a lot of work by women artists. We do have work by women artists in the collection. We have a Rosa Bonheur uh, and Anna Coleman Ladd, a number of works, but they are not particularly present. And so I think there is um, another aspect uh, that I, I didn't, I touched on briefly in this presentation, but a lot of being a successful artist in the 19th century. Also, by the way, keep in mind that a lot of Isabella's collection is not just um, 19th century. Um, we, uh, so was marketing. Right, so it was basically spending a lot of time with patrons, socializing with patrons. If we think about one of Isabella's kind of best known connections with John Singer Sargent or even Anders Zorn, they are, they are constantly hanging out together. They have shared friends, you know. The artists spent a lot of time cultivating relationships with their patrons. Um, and that's not particularly compatible uh, with a lot of, that's not always compatible with the lives of women artists, not exclusively. But you know that's another huge kind of client-facing time demand that exists. Um, but yeah, I, I one of the great mysteries to me is why Isabella didn't collect more work by women artists. She was very she was friends with Cecilia Bow, who's a famous 19th century um, woman artist, who's a famous portraitist. They exchange a number of letters that are in our archives, and she never commissions her for a portrait. Um, so. There is a supply question, and we talked a lot about kind of supply, but there is also this demand issue um, and the struggles that women artists face in even getting collected. Not everyone like Mary Cassatt ends up with a Louisiane Havemeyer um, to be their supporter and advocate and ultimately give their, their collection to the Met. Thank you. Um, and next question um, from Ted Stebbins. Uh, <laughs> Brown would be, uh, 
pleased to be mentioned. Um, and I'll say I, I really enjoyed that anecdote as well. And I love that you opened the book with that. Uh, and on the question of art in museums representing a bias, what would you suggest to correct this? Thank you um, for that. And I'm, I have to say I'm very flattered by the number of um, scholars of American art who are here. Uh, so I actually think the first, the first, um, well, let me put it this way. I work in museums and you know, the gardener does not collect, but of course at the NGA, I was in a museum that does collect and I am fully aware. And I think the public probably doesn't fully understand collecting in a museum is a long and slow process, right? So that still life collection that I showed you had been promised in the early nineties and it had only come to the NGA in 2018 for me, maybe even 2019 for me to start kind of cataloging it. Um, so, we are sort of to correcting any bias does um, move in slow motion. And, I, and I'm always, you know, institutions take a while to shift. But I think the first thing that we can do is actually measure <laughs> um, the representation of artists in a collection. And that's what I've kind of hoped to show that museums might not be aware of it, but they actually have all this data at their fingertips. Um, and being able to see trends in acquisition over time, being able to actually count the number of, let's say, women artists or artists of color or the breakdown of media in a collection is something that they can do and can help guide decisions. Um, for those of you who are interested in kind of more of the museum application, um, the NGA, while I was there, we hosted an event called a Datathon, mostly because they wouldn't let me call it a hackathon because it was the federal government, where we invited teams to look at our collections data and they showed us some of these trends in diversity of acquisition and that, say, photography, for example. Um, was one of the ways that a lot of, and, and works on paper generally, that women artists were entering the collection. And so, um, you know, I think measurement is first, and then it becomes about institutional will um, and decision-making to try and make that happen, keeping in mind that there are very real financial constraints, that a lot of this stuff is in private hands, and you have to convince a donor to give it to you. Um, so I know that my fellow curatorial colleagues are doing their best um, to increase representation. Thanks, Diana. Uh, next question from uh, Theo Tyson. I'm so happy you included the Gorilla Girls, me too. Uh, how do you think contemporary women artists and collectors can use statistical data to inform their work and collections? Gosh, that's a really, uh, that's a really great question, Theo. And thank you for coming. And I'm glad you also love the Gorilla Girls. Um, so again, I think that, you know, in our history and in collecting, we've often done a lot by feeling. Um, and so even just having a spreadsheet where you've recorded what you've collected and just like looking and sort of taking stock um, of what's been collected can be uh, the first step in assessing whether you're kind of meeting the goals that you wanna meet, let's say as a collector. You know, for artists about kind of statistics and how it can help inform artists and their work, um, you know, it's a really interesting question. I think, you know, artists are going to want to work in the medium and format that they want to work in, right? I mean, all within a budget constraint, right? I think something we often forget is that like artists have to buy materials and they have, as I pointed out, limited periods of time to work in. And often that might lead them to, let's say, watercolor or printmaking or maybe something that's a little bit faster or is a multiple. Um, but <laughs> this it might sound silly, but you can think 
I remember I was talking to a contemporary about this recently and his thoughts about kind of archival or archival materials or preservation. I mean, I do think you can think about how will this be presented in a museum? How can it be shown? How can it be sustainably shown? If you choose something that, if you work in a medium that's light sensitive and I was in a works on paper department, I love works on paper. It's probably helpful to know as an artist that even if you get collected by a major museum, you can only ever be, that work can only ever be on view for a limited period of time, right? Because you have to keep it safe and you have to protect it from the light. Um, so perhaps that could inform how artists think about their strategy in terms of medium. Great. Um, and I think we probably have time for one or two more questions. Um, so the next one says, hi, Diana. I would be interested in hearing more about your process of categorizing artists by gender. What issues did you run into and what issues do you foresee future researchers encountering, especially if they were to focus on contemporary art? Um, so for example, non-binary individuals, artists with non-European American names, et cetera. Yeah, that's, that's a really great question and, and quite a complex one. And I, I try to address it um, in the book. So the first issue of course, is that now we don't understand gender as a binary construct, right? There are not, there are non-binary artists. Um, you know, I, I cheat a little bit in the, in the 19th century, there is a particular, there's a gender tends to be bound to biological sense, biological sex. That being said, you know, keep in mind artists like Rosa Bonheur, who um, actually had a permit to work in France to wear men's clothes, um, which was her preference. Um, nonetheless, she did show as Rosa Bonheur, right? So that, that leads me to the process of, of kind of, the technical process of categorizing by gender is fairly straightforward um, in the sense that I use a program called a gender API. It basically reads the first names and takes into account titles um, that are listed uh, of all of these artists and assigns a probability uh, that that person is either a man or a woman based on name. Now this doesn't work perfectly all the time. First of all, you have anonymous artists, right? You have people who show with just initials. Many of these people could be women. You have artists, one of my favorite kind of lesser known women artists is a woman named Claude Hurst, whose name is Claudine, but she showed as Claude Hurst and she does quite quote unquote masculine um, trompe l'oeil paintings. Um, and, you know, her sort of pseudonym uh, sort of male pseudonym as Claude was often undermined because in exhibition catalogs, she's usually Miss Claude Hurst. Um, but nonetheless, when she's just Claude Hurst, that's someone who I would miss completely. Actually, she would have been assigned as a man according to this API, right? It's only my specific knowledge of her that I can recategorize her. So there are definitely flaws in that algorithm. And you kind of have to um, understand those flaws, but also think that gaining this knowledge even with those limit cases is still worthwhile despite those issues. With contemporary artists and, and certainly more global collections where the softwares aren't as developed, like in this case, this was software that works in English and, and I think it had eight other European languages. Um, those, those present a lot more issues when it comes to automating um, categorization. And I think for contemporary art, you just have to have, it can't be just sort of like, man, woman, um, gender fields. It just is not um, the model that applies today. Um, but then there are all sorts of issues with what authority does a museum have to sort of classify an artist's gender, especially if gender is a spectrum and um, people 
their gender identities are fluid over the course of their careers. Um, so I think it's a complicated question, but one where you have to kind of be clear about your assumptions and weigh the value of being able to count against the kind of complicated issues of what making assumptions and categorizations does to get rid of some of that richness and complexity of each person and each painting. Great point, Diana, thank you so much. Um, and I think for our last question, um, which I think will help you just gesture to the rest of the book and I hope inspire um, folks to pick that up and, and, um, and also maybe you can share some ideas that maybe didn't make it into the book, but that um, maybe you're holding on to for something later. Um, so our last question, is this type of data collection and analysis being applied in other lines of art historical inquiry in addition to gender? Yeah, so um, as Christina said, thanks for the chance to plug my own book. Um, I have two other chapters. One is actually about images of nature in 19th century France and what basically the growth of a commuter rail that let you go to a pretty forest um, does and, and living cheaply in the suburbs does um, to the content of 19th century French art um, and how that might change some of our assumptions and some kind of major works of art historical in the art historical literature. Um, and then also this, I, I have a chapter about images of empire um, shown at the Royal Academy. And again, there you, you end up with some really interesting issues about which subject matter gets conferred to oil on canvas and what is more present in let's say print culture. Um, and why those, why let's say images of empire might be largely excluded from the walls of this one exhibition venue, but um, quite present in print culture. Uh, I think there are endless possibilities. There are other people who are working on this sort of thing. Um, there's a fabulous uh, co-authored paper that Stephen Nelson, who's the Dean of CASBA um, and uh, co-authored with us, uh, Chad Topaz, who's a professor at Williams and several other co-authors about um, the diversity of artists and museums. They used, they surveyed 18 museums across the US. I recommend you check it out. Um, Max Schiff's work, he's, uh, he was at UT Dallas, he's just moved to a different university, um, which deals with kind of networks of artists and clusters of them over time and where, where is artistic innovation coming from, where um, really across the centuries. So there's little bits of this bubbling up. Um, but I think, I often say, uh, the most expensive time consuming part of any economics or economic history project is actually data creation. It takes forever. Um, it's really complicated. And so often people end up working on the same data sets that have already been created by someone else. The great news is art historians actually have tons of data. They just didn't know it. <laughs> and some of which you can just export to a spreadsheet at your institution. Um, so I think the possibilities are endless. And when we take these zoomed out views, I'm sure people are gonna find things that I never anticipated and that hopefully they never anticipated. 